MSW Media. Today's episode of The Daily Beans is brought to you by our patrons. Our premium subscribers make the show possible, and in return, they get an ad-free feed, access to my personal show notes, the photos submitted in the good news, VIP meet-and-greet and pre-sale event tickets, invites to our private social media groups, and access to bonus content. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash thedailybeans. News, Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. Today, the Supreme Court denies Lindsey Graham's emergency motion for a stay pending his appeal, forcing him to testify in the Fulton County DA's special grand jury investigation. The January 6th committee has interviewed the Secret Service spokesman that attempted to undercut Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. Prosecutors are looking at the 2018 Florida election protest as a model for the insurrection. Affirmative action is on the chopping block in the Supreme Court. And two leaders from True the Vote have been jailed for contempt of court. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Dana's out today. She'll be back with us on Friday. Later in the show, I'm going to be talking with Professor Jeremy Surrey, author of Civil War by Other Means. And I just wanted to thank our patrons. I hope you're enjoying the new weekend wrap-up bonus episode. If you want to become a patron, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash Mueller, she wrote, or go to Supercast and search for the Daily Beans. All right, we have a lot of news to get to, and there's a story about Hillary Clinton et al. suing Donald for sanctions and his lawyer, Alina Haba, and that is for the lawsuit he filed, they filed together, against Hillary Clinton and a bunch of other people saying there was some large RICO conspiracy. So they now face sanctions, and I think they're seeking about a million dollars. We'll talk about that on tomorrow's beans because we have we just don't have time for it today. There's just so much news. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. The Supreme Court declined on Tuesday to block a subpoena for Republican Senator Lindsey Graham to testify in front of the Atlanta special grand jury investigating the election interference in 2020. There were no public dissents from the order. The South Carolina senator had filed an emergency request asking the justices to halt his testimony, currently scheduled for November 17th, while legal challenges play out. Graham will now have to appear for testimony, although he will have room to object to certain questions as they come up, meaning the scope of his testimony or responses could be limited. He could plead the fifth. We're not sure. And then they might need to seek immunity, but they would also have to be careful not to give it to him in a federal case. They would have to work that out with the attorney general. In the unsigned order, the justices agreed with the lower courts, noting that Graham could not be asked to talk specifically about issues related to his legislative role. The court also noted that should any disputes arise about particular questions to the senator, then his lawyers can still object to questions on a case-by-case basis, which is how this shit works. You don't just go in and say, I shouldn't have to testify. You fucking show up, and then you can case-by-case pick your battles. Quote, accordingly... A stay or injunction is not necessary to safeguard the senator's speech or debate clause immunity. Now, that could leave substantial room for Graham to challenge questions or request requests from the grand jury, as I said. And Graham argued that he should not have to abide by the subpoena earlier because his testimony is foreclosed by the Constitution's speech or debate clause, which shields lawmakers from certain criminal or civil proceedings connected to their legislative duties. 
There's really no reason for a senator from South Carolina to be calling and asking to throw votes out in Georgia. Critics feared that if Graham were to prevail at the Supreme Court, it would embolden other members of Congress to make similar claims in an attempt to shield themselves from testifying. The clause reads that for any speech or debate in either house, members of Congress shall not be questioned in any other place. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has indicated she would like to question Graham on calls he made to elections officials in Georgia after the 2020 election. Lawyers for the senator have characterized the calls as investigatory phone calls carried out in furtherance of a legitimate legislative activity meant to inform him on his upcoming certification decision. Uh Uh-huh. Last week, Justice Clarence Thomas, who supervises the lower courts involved in the case, temporarily blocked the testimony. Thomas's move was an administrative stay that was most likely issued to give the Supreme Court justices more time to consider the dispute and to allow Lindsay to appeal. Now, Willis argued that individuals who were on the call have publicly indicated their understanding that Graham was suggesting or implying in the calls that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger should throw out certain ballots or adopt procedures that would alter the results of the election. And in other news, the House Committee investigating January 6, 2021 Capitol insurrection interviewed Secret Service spokesman Anthony Guglielmi on Monday, in part focusing on his role in issuing statements that undercut Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. That's according to people familiar with the interview. Lawmakers and investigators on the committee are working to finish a final report delving into the intelligence failures of why the Secret Service failed to take action after it was notified of various threats regarding January 6th. During her live testimony, Hutchinson testified Tony Ornato, the deputy chief of staff who worked and served as a liaison for the Secret Service, told her that Trump tried to wrestle the steering wheel away from the head of his Secret Service detail, Robert Engel, after his appearance at a Stop the Steal rally on the eclipse. The committee repeatedly on Monday asked him to walk through how he chose to describe Ornato and Engel's accounts of events on January 6th and the agency's rebuttal of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony about the story that she gave under oath. That story was provided by Ornato about Trump's behavior and Engel didn't contradict it. Many of the lawmakers on the panel were present for the interview, and a committee spokesperson has declined to comment. Up next, one of my longtime fantasy indictment drafts is in the news today. President Trump and other top Republicans were stoking claims that the election had been stolen and their supporters were protesting in the streets. Members of the far-right group The Proud Boys and people close to Roger Stone, including Matt Gates, took part in the action as the crowd was chanting, Stop the Steal. But this was in 2018. The setting was South Florida. And the election in question was for governor and a hotly contested race that would help determine who controlled the U.S. Senate. Now, four years later, the Justice Department is examining whether the tactics used then served as a model for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. In recent months, prosecutors overseeing the seditious conspiracy case over the Proud Boys have expanded their investigation to examine the role of Jacob Engels. You've heard me talk about this guy a lot if you've been listening to the show for a while, because this was like a year, year and a half ago. He is a Florida Proud Boy who accompanied Stone to Washington for January 6th and the role he played in the 2018 protests. The prosecutors want to know whether Engels received any payments or drew up any plans for the Florida demonstration and whether he has ties to other people connected to the Proud Boys' activities in the run-up to the storming of the Capitol. Different prosecutors connected to the January 6th investigation have also been asking questions about efforts by Roger Stone, a longtime advisor to Trump, to stave off a recount in the 2018 Senate race in Florida. That's according to people familiar with the matter. 
Matt Gates, a Republican in Florida, as we know, participated in the 2018 demonstration, but the extent and nature of his involvement remain unclear. Fritz Scheller, a lawyer for Joel Greenberg, that's the local Florida tax collector who's cooperating with the government in the investigation into Matt Gates, declined in response to questions to discuss the specifics of what his client told the authorities about the 2018 incident. Still, Mr. Scheller said a significant aspect of Mr. Greenberg's cooperation has been his assistance in matters involving efforts to subvert the democratic process. <laughs> We're waiting for these two stories to collide. In the weeks after the 2020 election, Gates took part in Trump's attempts to challenge the certification of the vote count, but there's no indication that he is part of the Proud Boys inquiry. Gates did not respond to text messages seeking comment. The expanded investigation of the Proud Boys emerged as five members of the group, including Enrique Tarrio, former leader, are set to be tried on charges of seditious conspiracy in federal district court in Washington. That trial is scheduled to begin on December 12th. The Oath Keeper's seditious conspiracy trial is now in week five. As part of the investigation, prosecutors are seeking to understand whether Jacob Engels has ties to a little-known Miami-based cryptocurrency promoter who may have played a role in the Capitol attack. A week before the building was stormed, that promoter, her name is Erica Gemma, gave Tario a document called 1776 Returns, according to several people familiar with the matter. The document laid out a detailed plan to surveil and storm government buildings around the Capitol on January 6th in a pressure campaign to demand a new election. Neither Stone nor Engels nor Gemma responded to messages for comment. Stone denied at the time he had anything to do with the Florida protests, and he also denied he played any role in January 6th. Still, he has long maintained close relations with the Proud Boys, especially Tario, who took over the group in 2018, and Engels, who runs a website called Central Florida Post and has long been involved in state Republican politics. Engels served, among other things, as a spokesman for Tario's unsuccessful 2020 congressional campaign. In March of that year, Mr. Engels published a photograph in the Central Florida Post showing Andrew Gillum, who lost the 2018 Florida governor's race to Ron DeSantis, lying naked on the floor of a Miami hotel room. He claimed in an article accompanying the photo that Tario helped him get the photo. In 2019, during his prosecution related to the investigation into Russian efforts to sway the 2016 race, Stone posted an image on social media of the federal judge, Amy Berman Jackson, with crosshairs next to her head. When questioned in court about the image, he acknowledged that both Tario and Engels helped him run his social media accounts. Both Mr. Engels and Tario were members of an encrypted group in the chat room called FOS, Friends of Stone, that Mr. Stone used in the months that followed the 2020 election. Mr. Engels went with Mr. Stone to Washington on January 5th and January 6th, 2021, accompanying him around the city over the course of the two days. Prosecutors are interested in whether a written plan existed setting out details for the Brooks Brother 2.0 protests in the same way that 1776 returns described a plan for occupying six House and Senate office buildings and the Supreme Court on January 6th. And speaking of the Supreme Court, they are poised to say that colleges and universities can no longer take race into consideration in missions programs, a decision that will likely overturn decades-old precedent and could diminish the number of African-American and Hispanic students in higher education. During a marathon session lasting almost five hours, the justices heard from a total of five lawyers. Three argued on behalf of Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Two others, both former clerks to Justice Clarence Thomas, argued for the conservative group Students for Fair Admissions behind the challenge. With a six to three conservative liberal majority, the question may not be whether the court will strike down affirmative action, but how far it will rule. Here are the key takeaways for Monday's arguments. Central to the case 
are whether schools are trying hard enough to find race-neutral alternatives in order to achieve diversity. Justice Amy Coney Barrett, Sam Alito, and Chief Justice Roberts repeatedly pushed lawyers for the schools about their efforts to build a class without taking race directly into consideration. Barrett pursued a line of questioning, suggesting that instead of checking a box, an applicant could use an essay to demonstrate unique personal characteristics. Roberts noted that if race may no longer be taken into consideration, there may be an incentive for the university to, in fact, truly pursue race-neutral alternatives. Suppose, he says, that a student is an immigrant from Africa and moves to a rural area in western North Carolina where the population is overwhelmingly white. This is Sam Alito in a hypothetical. He wondered if instead of taking race into consideration, it would be permissible for the student to write an essay about how he had to deal with huge cultural differences. Patrick Strawbridge, representing Students for Fair Admission, said it would be permissible because that the preference is not being based upon race, but upon cultural experiences. The exchange caused a skeptical Justice Elena Kagan to exclaim, the race is part of the culture and the culture is part of the race, isn't it? I mean, that's slicing the bologna awfully thin, she said. Another issue that troubled the conservative justices was the notion that in 2003, the court suggested in a decision called Gretter v. Bollinger that the consideration of race as a factor could come to an end by 2028. Fumbling for her reading glasses, Amy Coney Barrett read directly from Gretter, quote, using racial classifications are so potentially dangerous, however compelling in their goals, they can be employed no more broadly. Grutter says this is dangerous and it has to have an end point, Barrett stressed on Monday. She wondered if Grutter was grossly optimistic and that in reality, schools would never stop taking race into consideration. She noted that Grutter called race classifications risky and potentially poisonous. When Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelegar said that eventually there would be an end point when society changes, Roberts seized an opportunity to highlight that Grutter had promised 25 years. Grutter gave us a number, he asked Prelegar. Do you want to give a number? And Roberts went on to say, I don't see how you can say the program will ever end. Your position is that race matters because it's necessary for diversity, which is necessary for the sort of education you want, Roberts said. It's not going to stop mattering at some particular point. You're always going to have to look at race because you say race matters to give us the necessary diversity. She declined, and then Justice Brett Kavanaugh piled on. If you don't have a number, and I understand why it's difficult, but if you don't have something measurable, it's going to be very hard for this court, he said. What, what the fuck? Every, what, all your decisions have to have a time limit now? I fucking hate that guy. The two attorneys representing the challengers, Strawbridge and Cameron Norris, from the firm Consovoy McCarthy, are both former clerks to Justice Thomas, who is, a, you know, a longtime critic of affirmative action. In the Grutter case, Thomas wrote, the Constitution abhors classification based on race, not only because those classifications can harm favored races or are based on an illegitimate motive, but also because every time the government places citizens on racial registers and makes race relevant to the provision of burdens or benefits, it demeans us all. His comments Monday suggested nothing had changed in his thinking. In fact, at times he went further than the other conservatives, questioning whether the diversity itself is even a goal in the first place. I've heard the word diversity quite a few times, he said, and I don't have a clue what it means. He seriously fucking said that. It seems to mean everything for everyone. That's what he said. For the first time in history, a black female justice heard arguments in an affirmative action case at the Supreme Court. Justice Kitaji Brown-Jackson had several lines of attack, clearly pushing the notion 
She thought diversity was a compelling reason to allow race as one of many factors to be part of the decision-making process in higher education. She pressed Strawbridge about whether his group even has the legal right or standing to be in court, suggesting it lacked the legal injury necessary to bring the challenge because race was only one of many factors considered. Why is it that race is doing anything different than the other 40 or so factors schools consider? She asked this during the UNC arguments. She said there are no points tallied and no set targets or quota. They're looking at the full person, she said. And in later arguments, she wondered whether the schools could run into equal protection arguments if they looked at some factors and not race. Quote, what I think you're saying is that people have to mask their identities when they come in contact with the admissions office just on the basis of their difference. She also pursued a line of questioning that she deployed earlier in the term when the court considered Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. She made an appeal to her conservative colleagues who favored judicial philosophies called originalism, which is a doctrine that requires the Constitution to be interpreted based on the meaning the founders intended. She argued that the Voting Rights Act case that the Constitution rejected language would have insisted on a colorblind society. And she suggests that the drafters of the 14th Amendment understood race-conscious measures would be needed to ensure the equality and liberty promised in that amendment. Sotomayor returned repeatedly to the statistics coming from schools and states that have barred affirmative action. What we know, she says, we have nine states who've tried it, and each of them, as I mentioned earlier, white admissions have either remained the same or increased, and clearly in some institutions, the numbers of underrepresentative groups has fallen dramatically. So I think these arguments were just a, an exercise in futility, but it was good to get to hear those arguments. Uh, I think the court will gut this. And the leaders of True the Vote, an organization that has spread the big lie, were taken into custody Monday after a federal judge in Texas ruled them in contempt of court. Founder Catherine Engelbrecht and former board member Greg Phillips were escorted by federal marshals out of the Houston courthouse and into a holding cell following the judge's decision. The order marked the latest twist in a defamation case brought last month by Connect, an election software company that True the Vote claimed allowed the Chinese government to have access to a server in China that held the personal information of nearly 2 million U.S. election workers. Connect has vigorously disputed that lie. The judge overseeing the case, Judge Kenneth Hoyt, had ordered Engelbrecht and Phillips to reveal the name of a person who allegedly helped True the Vote access Connect's computer systems. When they declined to meet the court's 9 a.m. deadline, the judge found them in contempt. The pair have claimed without evidence that the person who helped them was a confidential FBI informant. Now, keep in mind, Brnovich, give a little context here, who's the conservative attorney general in Arizona, has turned True the Vote over to the IRS saying, you guys probably want to check their nonprofit status because they're saying that they have FBI informants working for them and that they gave geolocation data about mules to us, which we don't have, and that they gave them to the FBI. The FBI says we don't have that. And so they're lying and they're fundraising off of it. And that, you know, might want to check their nonprofit status. So the pair have now claimed that this person who helped them get access to the Connect computer systems is a confidential FBI informant, and they refuse to reveal the name. And the judge said, fine, you can sit in jail until you do. In a statement, Engelbrecht said, we will be held in jail until we agree to give up the name of a person we believe was not covered under the terms of the judge's order. Okay. Michael J. Wynn, a lawyer for Engelbrecht and Phillips, says that we're looking at alternative remedies. <laughs> Decline further comment. There isn't. You fucking stay in jail until you give up 
or say you're lying. Katie Breen, a spokesperson for True the Vote, released a statement that said the organization was calling for the immediate release of its leaders and that its attorneys were appealing the ruling. Good luck. Dean Pam Phyllis, a lawyer for Connect, says Judge Hoyt's order holding Engelbrecht and Phillips in contempt speaks for itself. Connect Chief Executive Eugene Yu was arrested in early October on charges that appeared to mirror some of the claims of True the Vote. The Los Angeles District Attorney's Office later downgraded its accusations, saying Connect had exposed the personal information of tens of thousands of county workers to possible compromise. Yu's attorney had requested the charges be dismissed, arguing they are without merit, and Phillips and Engelbrecht are prominent and longstanding members of that election denier movement. Now, just days after the 2016 election, Phillips claimed without evidence he had verified more than 3 million votes had been cast by non-citizens, just enough to wipe out Hillary Clinton's margin in the popular vote tally. Donald Trump, then president-elect, avidly repeated the claim. Phillips later announced that a fundraising effort was underway to verify his claim, but in a 2017 video posted on YouTube, he said not enough donations were received to finish the job. True the Vote later received millions in donations to investigate the 2020 election. One donor, Fred Eshelman, gave the group $2.5 million, but then sued to get his money back, claiming True the Vote directed much of his money to people or businesses connected to Engelbrecht. A lawyer for the organization denied Eshelman's claim. Engelbrecht and Phillips most recently were executive producers of 2000 Mules, the widely discredited film that even Bill Barr laughs at. Through spokespeople for the movie, said it made millions of dollars in revenue. And then no fraud was ever found, though. So there we go. We're going to take a quick break here, but I will be back with Professor Jeremy Surrey to discuss his new book, Civil War by Other Means. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. And I just wanted to take a second to thank our patrons and tell you about a new weekly wrap-up bonus episode that I'll be recording a full bonus episode that comes out on the weekends and it'll be for patrons. I know a lot of people have said, man, I miss my beans on the weekends. Well, now we're going to have a weekly wrap-up episode. And for as little as three bucks a month, patrons get the ad-free premium feed. They get access to the new weekend Daily Beans weekly wrap-up episode, pre-sale tickets for live shows, invites to meetups and meet and greets with the hosts, uh, access to our private social media groups. You get links to our bi-monthly happy hour Q&A on Zoom, plus a whole host of merch, including stickers, mugs, and t-shirts for signing up. And if you can't afford a membership, we have had over a thousand patrons donate a one-year subscription to those who can't swing it. For just 36 bucks a year, you can donate a premium feed to someone in need. And you can also sign up for that program if you want to get on the list to receive one. Or if you want to donate one, just do that at dailybeanspod.com and look for patrons helping patrons. For more information on becoming a premium subscriber, head to patreon.com slash thedailybeans or search for us on Supercast. And thanks so much to all those who make the show possible. Hi, everybody. It's AG from The Daily Beans. Hey, this is Kimberly Johnson, host of the Start Me Up podcast. Hi, it's Frangela from The Final Word and Idiot of the Week podcast. Hi, this is Jody Hamilton of the From the Bunker podcast. Hi, it's Mariah and Steve from, from How, How We, we win. win. And we are joining forces to support the How We Win Fund. The midterms are coming and the best way we can fight back against the Republicans is to support Democrats in key battleground states. Our democracy is under attack, but we don't agonize. We, we organize. organize. Yes, we do. Together, we can protect and expand our Democratic majority this November. We are so close to a 
Cena, mansion proof majority in the Senate. Take them out. Join the MSW Media family of podcasts and support the races that need us the most by donating to Swing Left's National Impact Fund. Just one donation goes directly to all of Swing Left's top races. A GOP stoking hate, peddling lies, and suppressing our vote means we need everyone to step up to protect voting rights, civil rights, abortion rights, the environment, constitutional gender equality, the government, our institutions, all the things. Do it. We beat Trumpism before, and together we will make history again. So go to swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win to donate what you can, share this with your friends and family, and let's show the GOP that the grassroots persistence is here to stay. This is How We Win. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I am honored to be joined by Professor of History and Public Affairs at University of Texas at Austin. He's an author. He's got many books, including Sustainable Security, Rethinking American National Security Strategy in 2016, and The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office in 2017, and has a new book that just came out on October 18th. It's called Civil War by Other Means. Please welcome Professor Jeremy Surrey. So good to be with you, Allison. I'm a huge fan of your show. I'm a huge fan of your work as well. I, uh, you know, If I were still in school, I'd be crashing all of your courses. But I appreciate you coming on to talk to me today, and it's especially timely given the news today about a QAnon conspiracy theorist, in my opinion, attempting to assassinate the Speaker of the House. She just happened to not be there and instead attacked her husband with a hammer. He is now in brain surgery. And then, of course, we hear today that a Pennsylvania man has pled guilty for his death threats against Congressman Swalwell. And, you know, tell us what prompted you to write the book Civil War by Other Means, because we've seen instances of this political violence. And it's something that that's a theme that, you know, that comes up in your book. Absolutely. I, I wrote the book for exactly this reason, Allison. You, you've hit on the key issue, as you always do, which is that uh, since the Civil War, our society has been a very, very violent society. We don't teach the history that way. In fact, we teach the opposite. And we go around the world telling other countries to be just like us because we're supposed to be in our own image, a very peaceful society. But we're not. And what my book chronicles are the ways from 1865 into the present, how paramilitary groups, groups of conspiracy theorists, groups of local law enforcement in many cases, have used violence to intimidate, to maintain power, to exclude people by race, by gender. And the point of my book is to show that this has become a normal part of our institutions and our politics. The gift of the last few years has been to unmask this for us. It was always there. It's now been unmasked, and I think we need to have a conversation about what we will do to get violence out of the normal politics of our society. What we're seeing in the attack on Nancy Pelosi's house echoes the assassinations of the 1860s and 70s and the work of the Ku Klux Klan and the coups that occurred in so many towns where white mobs overthrew black governments and Jewish governments in the 1870s and 80s. Uh, that history is with us today. We need to recognize it and do something about it. Yeah, it has. And as you mentioned in your book, it never really ended after 1865. Reconstruction was a failure uh, in most ways. The Supreme Court has been kind of upholding loopholes that were left in the, uh, you know, the, the Reconstruction Amendments 
to allow us to backslide into white supremacy, uh, you know, just kind of leaving a little back door open for, for ourselves. And, and, you know, I've talked to several people about this phenomenon at Dr. Eddie Glaude, yeah. uh, Ellie Mistal, and how we have these through lines throughout history that have led us to where we are now with the attack on the Capitol, you know, with multiple studies showing that the, gr- you know, that the, the, the grievance that most of these middle-aged white men had from purple swing counties was what's called the Great Replacement Theory, which has been around for a very long time. So can you talk a little bit about those through lines from Reconstruction and even before, you know, because Ellie Mistal says that the Supreme Court today is closer to the Dred Scott Court than it is to the Loving Court. They just have fancy words given to them by the Federalist Society to cover up their racism and misogyny. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, and I think there are two through lines in particular, in addition to the through line of violence that we've already talked a bit about, right? One is the through line of uh, using the law to exclude and creating in the law, not just loopholes, that's what you said, and there are loopholes, but explicit exclusions in the law. So the 15th Amendment is written explicitly to allow states and local communities to keep people away from the voting booth. 15th Amendment says you cannot deny someone the right to vote based on race. As I show in my book, there's a whole debate over whether to make that a more extensive voter protection amendment. And Northern Republicans, white Republicans from the North are against that because they don't want to empower immigrant communities and African-American communities in Ohio, in Illinois and elsewhere. So the law itself is written with white supremacy built into it, with patriarchy built into it. And so that through line carries forward. The second is, I think we see parallels from the 1870s to today, most significantly around what I would call status anxiety. That's what the great replacement theory is. So coming out of the Civil War, there are all of these white communities who were filled with families that had a lot of wealth that lost their wealth in the war. They lost their slaves, four million slaves, and they lost the wealth they had in the bank in Confederate dollars as Confederate dollars became worthless. And so they used other forms of power violence, the law, voter exclusion to maintain their status when their status was threatened. I think that's exactly what we're seeing today. The Great Replacement Theory is similar to the cry that came from John Wilkes Booth when he jumped on stage after after killing Lincoln. What was he saying? I've slayed the tyrant who challenges my status as a white man. And I think we're hearing that today. They don't want um, AOC. They don't want Democrats to threaten their status as people who have been in charge for so long. Yeah. And, and that's why, where, you know, equality is threatening to them. And, and I think that that's, you know, been shown throughout the, the ages. And, and that's why I think uh, your book does a, a wonderful job connecting, you know, throughout history. It's not just like we woke up one day and we were a culture of no and everybody has to fight their ass off to get every little tiny right they can instead of everyone having the rights. And perhaps we, we pull them away, which is, you know, what's happening with Roe. So it's, it's kind of, yeah. It's c- kind of really thought provoking to think that if one the constitutional right based on privacy can fall, then they all can. Right. And, and this is uh, your point about the Supreme Court, which is spot on. Right. This is the Dred Scott Court because the court is using old normalized practices that are not constitutional, but they're old traditional practices to justify its contemporary activities. Here's what originalism really is. I say this as a historian who studies the original moments, right? Originalism is not a historical judgment. The members of the court, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, they have no historical understanding of those moments. They haven't studied it, just like I haven't studied law, right? They have no particular expertise in that. What they have expertise in is finding a justification for doing things that we did in the 1870s and 80s 
and saying that that is an originalism that justifies our world today. Look at the abortion laws that many states, including Texas, have gone back to. That is a reinscribing of a history of power for a particular group and a disempowering of many other groups. So what um, what can we do where, with, with where we are right now, teetering back on the edge? You know, I'm thinking 1865, 1933, 1968. You know, but the difference is, is we didn't have a bunch of election deniers in in those times saying that they really won the election and that you should go beat people up who disagree with you. So what 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 do we do? How do we win? How do we ensure that our institutions hold? Well, the first thing is people have to vote. <laughs> uh, people have to get out and vote. And I'm wearing a shirt. Your, your listeners can't hear saying vote. I, I wear it every day now. Uh, people have to go out and vote. They have to make their voices heard and they have to do what African-Americans and Jews and others did in the 1860s and 70s. I talk about in my book, sometimes walk miles and stand in line uh, for hours. But we've got to make our voices heard. That's just a start. Then we have to shine a light, as your show does. This is why I love your show on these issues. People have to see these issues. It's not that the majority of Americans agree with the bullies. They didn't in the 1870s. They don't today. But it's that the bullies are the loudest voices. And there are too many people who are complacent, too many people who don't pay attention. And we complain about social media spreading hate. We need to do a better job, as you're doing, of using social media to raise awareness. Uh, And change happens, Allison, in our history through generational change. So quite frankly, it's got to be a young group of people across the country who say we're not going to put up with this anymore. That started to happen after George Floyd's murder. That was one of the most enthralling and idealistic moments in my entire lifetime. Mm. So many people, more than ever before in our history, more than even in the 60s, came out to protest against criminal injustice perpetrated by police, to protest against racism. And it changed our society. It didn't change our politics overnight, but it changed our society. We need more of that. I'm a social activist. I believe in the history of social activism. Mobilize people, get people out, educate them, and have them make their voices heard. That's how our society changes. Well, thank you so much for taking some time and writing this book. It's such an important book. It came out on October 18th. It's available now. It's called Civil War by Other Means by Jeremy Surrey. Jeremy, tell everyone where they can find and follow you and support your, you know, your your activism on social media. Uh, well, they can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Jeremy Suri. It's J-E-R-E-M-I-S-U-R-I. I have a podcast also called This Is Democracy. And Allison, you were one of our star guests, and it's one of our most popular episodes. Uh, but we also have people on like Samantha Power uh, and all kinds of uh, sc- scholars, activists, various individuals. Um, and that is on, uh, it's called This Is Democracy. It's available at wherever you get your podcasts. And then, of course, my book, Civil War by Other Means, is available at all bookstores. It was just in the front of the uh, Barnes and Noble in New York last week. So it's still there and people are buying it. It's available on Amazon. So thank you for having me on and promoting my book, Alison. Absolutely. You got an audio book? Are you the reader? We have an audio book coming in about a month. I wanted to have Tom Hanks as the reader, but uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I think I think they're going to have a professional reader. That's usually what they do. It just goes faster. Well, it's been really great to talk to you and uh, everybody pick up the book and we'll, we'll we'll speak again soon. Shortly after the election, I'd like to talk to you to see what your thoughts are on, on the outcome. My prediction, I think we'll pick up two seats in the House and three seats in the Senate. I think it'll still be a hairline thing, but uh, that is what, what what I'm kind of feeling from the early numbers that are coming in. And it's a lot of young people, like oh, you said, and they are here to save 
the country and democracy. So, And if I can add a prediction, uh, I think Beto is going to win in Texas. Wow, wouldn't that be great? The, the enthusiasm for him, if he doesn't, it's because of voter suppression. But the enthusiasm, he's going every day to four or five different parts of the state, including very conservative areas, and he's drawing huge crowds of first-time voters, 18-year-olds, 20-year-olds. So I'm feeling good about, I'm feeling good about Beto right now. Yeah. And I'll never forget when uh, Obama, just after the 2016 election, was on, I think, Pod Save America. And he was asked what gives him hope, uh, you know, because he's the hope guy. Right. And and he says, well, all the kids that are five, six, seven years old right now that in another six, seven, eight, nine years are going to be coming of voting age and they're just going to wash over this country like a like a, a wave of hope. And so I, I hang on to that with my, you know, with every fiber in my being. Absolutely. And I see it every day with my students. And it, what frustrates me is people want to stop them from voting, but they are different. Uh, my kids grew up with Obama as president, it's the first president they knew. Uh, Trump seems like the oddity, not Obama. And that's the right way to think about the world. hundred percent. Thank you so much, Jeremy Surrey. Thanks. We will talk soon, my friend. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Are you struggling with the political upheaval of the current moment? Maybe you're trying to figure out how to keep going and fight for a better world. Well, starting in October, we're bringing you a brand new podcast made for the here and now. It's called Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. Hosted by me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a renowned activist and leadership expert, Living Through It hosts weekly interviews with guests who are changing the world from the ground up. We're offering you advice on how to continue working toward a better future in the face of burnout and exhaustion. And our aim is to inspire you, create hope, and share a collective vision for a more just and equitable future. I hope you'll join us on Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. Men cannot know the anguish of being ruled ineligible on anatomical grounds beyond one's control. Slaves can perhaps understand eunuchs, too, and perhaps even those doomed nobles like the deposed Emperor Romanos Diogenes, whose eyes have been put out. But not men. This podcast is brought to you by Empress, The Secret History of Anna Kay, the new book by Greg Oliar, now available on Amazon. If the truth is ever to be told, I am the only one left to tell it, and tell it I must. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, time for Halloween photos, I flood my inbox with them. Go to dailybeanspod.com. 
and click on contact to send us that. If you're a patron, you can see those pictures. You can <laughs> see what we're either laughing or ooing and aahing about. Uh, also, make sure right now, just pause this podcast. Make sure you're registered to vote if you haven't voted already. And then also call up everybody in your family. Send out an email. It just takes five minutes. They, they, they listen to you more than they listen to anything else. And tell them, hey, if you're not voting, would you please, just for me, go vote. Please. We need every single vote. All right, first up from Mamie, rhymes with Amy. She and her, hi, BQs. I believe the correct pronunciation of our intrepid voting rights lawyer is Mark Elias, as in, thank God for Mark Elias. AG will, alas, likely be reading his name too often following the upcoming midterms. And Mamie, yes, I had many of these corrections. I actually just sent a message to Mark and asked him, is it Elias or Elias? And he says, it's Elias. Thanks for asking. Next up from Meryl D, pronouns she and her. I used my points with Southwest Airlines to fly my grandson home from San Diego State University to ensure his voting for the first time ahead of him waiting to park was a pickup truck whose driver was in conversation with the parking lot attendant. It was Beto. (laughs) That's so amazing, Meryl. Awesome. Awesome. Alexis, pronouns she and her. Hello, Beans Queens. I have some Halloween pics to share. Yay! And I wanted to let you know how much the podcast has meant to me since you started with MSW. It kept me going through the pandemic, losing my job and depression that I'm now coming out of. And my good news is that since I committed to taking care of myself a few months ago, I've lost 26 pounds of the weight I gained during the pandemic. I've attached a few pics. One is of my nine-year-old Mason, who decided to go super creepy for his costume this year. And the other is my friend and rocking our inflatable costumes at our local Guinness brewery in Maryland. I am the unicorn. (laughs) For Halloween, our friend in the sweatshirt was on acid, (laughs) and we were her quote-unquote trip. Thank you for all you do. Love you guys. LSD in the house. Okay, let's see this. Oh my God, that's so funny. (laughs) That's amazing. The unicorn is so great. Oh yeah, that's a creepy clown costume. I'm going to scroll right on by that. That is frightening. Tell him well done. Next up from Jill Durgy, pronouns she and her. Hello, Beans Queens. Thanks to your podcast, I am volunteering my digital marketing and design prowess to raise awareness for New York State Senate candidate Michelle Osterlich, District 44. I designed a snazzy website, michelleforstatesenate.com. That's F-O-R, michelleforstatesenate.com on Squarespace, and launched paid social ads on Facebook and Instagram, which drive donations for her and light shame for her 40-plus year serving GOP incumbent, who really likes ribbon cuttings, voting against gay marriage and choice, and is a proud A-rated NRA member. I am so happy to meet and work with amazing campaign volunteers, many of whom are my neighbors. Yes, I did try to contribute some of my comic art to dramatize the opponent's trumpery, but they skewed a little too dark and scary. Live and learn. Thank you, and go blue. Oh, yeah, look. Spooky. The case against Jim. We're on Tedisco's team. I love it. Okay, wow, that is really wonderful. I love your art. Kind of gives me like a, sort of like a Tim Burton kind of feeling. Love it. Next up from Josh, pronouns he and him. I've been listening to you guys since you left Spotify. I randomly saw your tweet, and I'm super glad I did. You guys are great and very informative and super funny. Today, I was feeling really upset because I am an educational support worker in Ontario, Canada, and the Ford government has decided to screw us over. 
But listening to the beans today has made me feel a thousand times better. And I just wanted to let you know. Also, Stormbreaker is Thor's axe. Ah, mm, I knew that. If I only had seen Thor. And, and Loki is the hammer guy, right? Okay. Now, now we go. Thank you. I'm glad I got that correction because I seriously didn't know the Stormbreaker one. Christopher B. Hello, wonderful human beans. I just wanted to drop in and say a good thing that happened to me recently is that I was able to take off some time from working and really just focus on self-care and getting my master's in social work degree at Portland State. Christopher B., that's not time off. You got a master's in social work. That's amazing. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Congratulations. And next up from Nicholas, he and him. Happy Halloween with some pets dressed for the occasion. Archer is our five-year-old boxer husky mix sporting the petals. And Persephone, our lab roddy pity, maybe, uh, a little hound mix, is ready to collect his pollen. Love the show and hope you have a happy one. Oh, look at this baby brindle face. So cute in the bee costume. And then the flower. Oh, it's so adorable. All right, next up from Bob Duff, Senate Majority Leader, Connecticut. Hi, AG and DG. I love this. Back again. Thank you for all the news every day. I love listening. Sending a picture of Molly, my pit rescue, who we got from the local pound. She was found by the highway, probably thrown from a car. She's such a sweetie, and I encourage all of your listeners to adopt. They are the most loving animals and never forget sending Halloween pictures. My other reason for writing is to encourage folks to hang out and hang in there in the next week. Don't let purposeful, discouraging polls or misinformation get you down. The other side is intentionally trying to deflate our energy. Do not let them fight back. When we work, we win. Get out there, AG. I love your election prediction. Let's make it a reality. Bob Duff, thank you so much. Senate Majority Leader of Connecticut. Look at the dog. (laughs) So cute. I love this dog. Thank you for sending more photos. And thanks to everyone for sending in your photos. Please keep those Halloween photos coming in. I'll be back tomorrow with more news. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, vote blue over Q, and bring someone with you. I'm NAG, and them's the Beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill, with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.